Blog Talk Radio. Diabetes Late Night. Uepa! Un, dos, tres, un pasito para adelante, María. Un, dos, tres, un pasito para atrás. Uepa! Enough is what they said back in 69, 
and that's what we're saying tonight. And joining me on this podcast, this very special podcast, will be Stephen Bernstein, Greg Rubin, Maria Salazar, Maya James, and Patricia Addy Gentle. Throughout the podcast, we'll be playing music from openly gay, ultimately fabulous, Ricky Martin, his greatest hits, Souvenir Edition, courtesy of Sony Music. Now, before we get things started, let's take a minute and visit 5 Equals 10 Men's Underwear and Athleisure Wear Merchandise. 5 Equals 10 is donating 10% of the company's profits to DivaBetic and our Wellness with a Wow. Uh, as well as several other nonprofit organizations. Making a difference is part of 5 Equals 10 core values. They understand the importance of providing others with opportunities, and together we could make the world a better place. Hey, how about this month in um, celebration of Father's Day, you could receive 30% off and free shipping on everything on their website. Just use the code FATHERSDAY2019 and visit 5 Equals uh, 10, 5Equals10.com. Plus, on Thursday, I'm going to be posting a special question on DivaBetic's Facebook pages. If you're one of the first two people to respond with the correct answer, you'll get a pair of your favorite merchandise. It would be a leisure, a leisure wear underwear from 5 Equals 10 in honor of Father's Day. So make sure you check that out on Friday. Let's get back to the music right now. Our musical inspiration, Ricky Martin. Wow, when he came out of the closet, he blew the door open for so many of us because he's really an inspiration about how you could be successful and be who you are, and there's no shame in having that label. He appeared in his first commercials at age six. He became a member of the teen group Menudo, and then he, after he left high school, he went on to appear on stage and television while also pursuing a career in music. We're so glad he did. Here he teamed up with hit maker Desmond's Child on this next single called She Bangs, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek. I came out in the late 80s, right before the 25th anniversary of Stonewall. That was such a big day for me. And every Pride March is like a vitamin shot because it's not just who shows up in marches in New York City or I came out in San Francisco, but it's also who's on the sidelines. So seeing yourself is so important. And understanding your history is core to knowing who you are. That's my belief. And so my first guest is just, um, he's so <coughs> wonderful, and I'm so excited to have him here because, you know, the Stonewall uh, riots started back in 1969. They're largely seen as a driving event <coughs> behind gay rights movement. <coughs> so joining me to share his experience of being at the second night of the Stonewall riots is my first guest, Stephen Bernstein. Hi, Stephen. Hey, hi, man. Hi. That's a tough act so to follow, to Ricky, Mar- Ricky Martin and your coming out story. <laughs> oh, by telling us your coming out story, you know, I, uh, um, there's a lot of wonderful things going on in New York City during Pride Month, and uh, I was able to attend something at the New York Historical Society last week where they were talking about 
gay before Stonewall and some of the things that were happening in gay life before 1969. And, you know, you and I have met several times now, and I've heard your story, so I really wanted to go back to, um, we're talking pre-1969, you were an actor living in Greenwich Village, and uh, tell us a little bit about what your life was like in Greenwich Village back before 1969. Uh, Certainly. Well, I was in my early 20s. I had a wonderful rent-controlled apartment on Cornelia Street, uh, three and a half rooms for $24 a month with a rooftop garden. And uh, I was never personally aware of difficulties in the city about being out or anything because the village was so gay. Everybody was out. And as I've told you, you you couldn't go out. If you were a young guy, you couldn't go out of your apartment to do your laundry or go to the grocery store without meeting somebody and having an instant date or a date later in the day. So, um, and I had been in the theater, so I had a different outlook on everything as well as the fact that it was slam-bang-dang in the center of the sexual revolution. And so um, New York, to me, in that particular period of time, was essentially really free. And yet, like at 1969, when you heard about Stonewall, the community in some ways was a little bit divided. So you kind of saw Stonewall as kind of a way to bring everyone together. Tell us about uh, what it was like to hear about Stonewall and then becoming a part of it on the second night. Uh, Certainly. Well, as a working actor, I I had done about 30 off-Broadway shows and one Broadway show, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And so I wasn't really a bar habitué person in the evenings. And although I'd heard about Stonewall and certainly walked past it, I'd never been in it. And the first night uh, when it all happened, I was standing in line with two dear friends, Charlie Sorrell and Douglas Norwick. We were in line at Frankie Campbell Funeral Home to pay our respects to Judy Garland, who had died um, in London. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to write a a slight because in so many uh, cases, Miss Garland is not brought up up as one of the influences of Stonewall. And she was because the entire gay community was heartbroken. And she was one of the, the, in, in essence, she facilitated Stonewall because people were just so angry and and that she had been lost and um, that's where I was the first night and as you know we've said there was no internet there was nothing but a telephone and you didn't really know you know on the west side of New York what was going on on the east side of New York but I got home that night after uh, uh, being at Frankie Campbell funeral home and I had phone messages, and and a lot of friends told me, did you hear what happened at Stonewall? I hadn't. And that was how it passed around. And so my friends, the same two, Charlie and Doug and I, went the next night uh, to Stonewall. We didn't get – we got on the block maybe a about, you know, 25 or 30 feet away from the entrance of the bar. And it was a fabulous scene. And the police were totally overwhelmed. And people were, 
uh, you know, people were angry and happy at the same time. And um, it was exceedingly empowering for so many in the crowd there. And what was very evident in the crowd there that evening was that it was all different kinds of lesbian and gay people. And we didn't really mix that much together. You know, there was the, 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 the singing uh, piano bar kind of gay guys, the uh, Wall Street gay guys, the leather men. Uh, there were lipstick lesbians. There were bull dyke lesbians. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way because I had a few friends and that's what they wanted to be called in that era. And it was amazing, Max, because everybody, every division of a gay kind of person that existed at that time was in the street and represented. And that was what was, was amazing first, to me. And Stephen, was that, that the first time you really saw the breadth of uh, the gay community, like the, the most people you've ever seen together? Because prior to that time, just for people listening, you know, there's a whole thing going on in Hollywood where we really weren't being able to show anyone from the LGBTQ community on screen from the 1930s to the 1960s. And in many ways, we were being, you know, uh, silenced as well as hidden from society, as well as the laws and the lavender scare and things like that. But I'm just curious, at that moment, was that the first time you really saw the breadth of the community? Well, yes, on a New York street, I have to say yes. But also in movies, you know, secretly there were those kind of sissy men like Edward Everett Horton and people of that ilk that, that essentially played gay characters but were never defined as gay. And that was in the 30s and 40s. So that was secret. But there it was. You know, you can go back at those movies and, and, and look at them now, and they're they're – essentially stereotype gay characters. But yes, on the street in front of Stonewall, it was amazing because there were Wall Street gay men and they were very, very hidden in that particular period of time. And then there were leather guys and that was when the clones were starting where men were wearing, you know, um, different colored handkerchiefs to indicate what their sexuality was. And they were there and there were kids that were gay from NYU and uh, it was, and that was eye opening because we were never, you know, each of those groups of people would have their own bars or their own place to hang out in, in that era, you know, and, and um, I went to a, you know, I would go to a showbiz bar. If I went to a bar, I never went, I, didn't even know about leather bars existing, and and um, and the same with all of my friends. Now tell me, uh, this made the news, and I want to get your reaction to it. Commissioner, uh, New York uh, Police Commissioner James O'Neill said he was sorry on behalf of the New York Police Department for the officers' actions during. 1969 clash outside of Stonewall Inn. He said the actions taken by the NYPD were wrong, plain and simple. How do you react to that? Because a lot of people don't realize just how violent the Stonewall riots were. You were there. How, how, did, how did, when you heard these words, what was going through your mind and what's your reaction? Well, I saw a lot of anger and I saw fists raised 
on the street. I didn't see no one was hitting each other and the police were surely not throwing things at us. They were overwhelmed. Uh, and my reaction, you know, it's 50 years later. It's it's in 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 our history. I guess that's like a blip. It's not a long time to wait for an apology. Uh, I, I mean, we haven't really apologized for so many things that have happened that ought to be apologized for on Earth. So um, I think it's an effort to be inclusive and to essentially. Uh, um, to see, you know, I know it was asked for. I, I heard on one news report and on NPR that it had been asked for, and so that uh, you know there was a slight apology a year ago, but this is a full-fledged out apology. And um, the, the the friends I have left from that era uh, are are very um, happy about it. It's a very emotional thing you can hear in my voice, and the truth of it is. That all of these people that are gone, you know, the people that 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 are are not on Earth from that era, they just wouldn't believe it. You know, they just wouldn't believe this happened. So uh, I'm 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 pretty uh, elated that that the apology was made. What's the biggest uh, What's the biggest outcome since the Stonewall riots and gay rights that's really uh, stands out to you? Like what's something you could look at 50 years later now and where you might have been surprised by or you're thrilled by or what, what really stands out to you that's changed so much in our community from the Stonewall riots? Well, I would say having the Gay Community Center at 208 West 13th Street. Who would have thought who could have thought there'd be an entire wonderful um, vintage building uh, with lessons and classes and places to go and places for kids to go that are, you know, running away from home or thrown out of home because they're gay? Who would have thought that then? You know, it's amazing. And I'm very proud of my association with that building uh, because I had a catering company uh uh, a, a bit later after Stonewall, but, but it was called Modern Food. And my partner, Danny Cass, and I uh, gave the center the party where they made the money for the mortgage. So I am thrilled to have been a part of it in that early time. And we did the first, Modern Food did the first and third garden party at the center. And that, too, was seeing the diverse groups of gay people in one place. And that is fascinating. And so to me, it's one of the greatest outcomes of the, the revolution that happened, uh, started by Stonewall. I love it. And, you know, you just mentioned... Uh, your partner, Danny, who died in 1989. And I know, Stephen, you're not living with diabetes, but you are living with what many would call a, a um, chronic condition today um, with your HIV status, AIDS status. So tell us a little bit about this, because I think a lot of our listeners are living with diabetes, could gain a lot from your perspective and how you approach life managing a chronic condition as you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, Danny was diagnosed in 1988, and between his diagnosis and death was barely six months. So there was nothing, it, it was like a roller coaster that couldn't be stopped. 
and I was diagnosed at the same time. And my approach, uh, which I, you know, it's it's kind of my th- approach to everything. You know, I'm an only child, left-handed gay man, and I've always done things my own way in my life because um, I had to. You know, I had teachers in the first grade that tied my hand, left hand behind me and told, told me I was possessed of the devil because I was left-handed. And so I untied my hand and, and just wrote with it, and I wouldn't accommodate what they said about me. And the same thing happened when I was diagnosed. My doctor said that if I didn't take AZT, I'd be dead in six months. And I saw friends taking AZT and perishing faster. And, you know, they were on the clock with, with like alarm clocks ringing all day and night, you know, they're taking it every three hours. And they were essentially poisoning themselves with way, way, way too much of, of uh, medicine. And so I didn't do anything. And I didn't do anything Western from 1989 to 1999. What I did was uh, Chinese herbs. I went vegetarian. I did acupuncture. I did a lot of vitamins. And I've always been interested in vitamins. So I researched uh, everything I could. And even to this day, I take about 30 different vitamins a day and I change things as I age. Uh, I'm, I'm as old as I've ever been right now. I'm 78, but I walked, you know, I live midtown Manhattan and I walked home from Essex and Delancey street on Saturday on that beautiful day. So I have great stamina and really good energy. And, um, I think Western medicine is amazing, but there's a lot out there that's alternate, alternate as well. And um, you, you have to you have to really be responsible for yourself and look to what works for you. And if if you know if 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 you get dizzy having three glasses of wine, have one. You know if you um, have too much candy, reduce it. You know if. Uh, uh, you you must age and gracefully, my Uncle Alan said to me long ago, is managing the side effects. And I really took that to heart as I was, was aging because everything is a side effect. So um, one does have to just be careful and, and have some common sense. And um, if you know something isn't good for you, um, stop it. And and do what's good for you. And uh, uh, I love it here. I I, I love New York. I, I love being gay gay in New York. I mean, you're my you're my gay hero because you have such an active <laughs> full life, and I'm sure everyone's going to hear the joy and love in your life. I have two more questions for you because I have to tell everyone. I mean, I you're like my superstar. So if you want to reach out to you, they'll contact me and I'll get in touch with you. But here's, uh, I have another question. Okay, so, you know, there's so many labels going on today. Your generation felt so hard for us to have the right to be labeled gay, lesbian, and today's generation is really running away from those labels and, and using new terminology. What do you think about this? What do you think about the, ch- the change going on with terms and labels within the community? I think it's fine. I I couldn't be happier. I mean, you know, in the old days, it would be derogatory and very mean when people would would scream queer at you. And now people are proudly queer. So, you know, you, you 
you, you know, time changes. Nothing stands still. The, you know, the skyline of New York is absolutely different than when I was born in Brooklyn in 1941. It's a different time. I'm happy with anything, you know, that we're with what people want to call themselves. And now, you know, I always think there were, you know, people were trans. Maybe that wasn't the label in in the old days. But, you know, you, you see these stories. One of George Washington's uh, army generals uh, um, was a woman, was a secret woman. And they discovered that by uh, her skeleton. She wasn't a man. So, I mean, it's been around for a very long time. And, and um I'm I'm pro anything, you know. It, it isn't a very stagnant world. It, things just bounce around like crazy. So, um, words are very powerful. And if you take a word that's been used negatively and spin it yourself to positive, that's okay by by me. Um, I, you know, I was at a Rise and Resist meeting a while ago, and and one one very young guy said, oh, it's so great to see, you know, a senior citizen here. And I went, honey, you know, I was arrested protesting the Vietnam War. I was in ACT UP from the beginning. You know, protesting isn't new. We recycled in World War II. Uh, I remember recycling, you know, uh, one of my earliest memories is when I could finally stand on a tin can that you opened both ends and flattened it. And they came around and collected tin cans and collected, you know, bacon fat and stuff like that to make soap. Uh, You know, everything old is new again. And, you know, now we're trying to get people to recycle. So I'm fine, you know, to go back to your original question, I'm fine with any label that um, is, is, is kind to ourselves. And finally, last question, you know, a lot of uh, gays, including myself, are terrified of getting old. I think a lot of times when you come out to your family, the first thing uh, your parents might have said, I know mine said, is I just hope you're not alone. And, you know, just meeting you has changed my whole uh, perception on aging and being gay. I just, what do you say to the younger generation about um, being terrified of getting being gay and getting old. Well, I was never happier in my whole life, which has been very kind for the most part, um, other for the than the 18 years I was with Danny, and he died in '89, and I really haven't been partnered since. I certainly have dated around, and I have a you know a, a, a couple of fun guys I see when they come to New York. And I'm not alone. You know, I might live alone with two cats, but I see somebody for lunch or supper every day. And um, uh, I could be alone, but I'm never lonely. And that's something that most only children have because we always had to amuse ourselves. Um, I, I, I sadly had a stillborn sister born after me and a baby brother that died before I was born that I never even knew about until after my parents died, which was such a crazy story. But then I understood my whole childhood with my parents as a result of this baby that died at 18 months old. So I I say to everybody, you know, um, always have friends, always have interests. 
New York is wonderful. There are museums to see. There's half-price tickets in Broadway. There's broadwaybox.com. If you're alone somewhere, talk to somebody at a communal table at lunch. Talk to somebody in a museum. Talk to somebody sitting next to you at the theater and say, what'd you think of that act? How are the co- Do you like the costumes? What'd you think? You know, it's like uh, that's what I do. I engage anybody I can talk to, and um, um, and it works for me. You know, it, it works for me. I'm about to have supper after uh, we chat with a friend I've known s- since we're both 18 from prep school, um, uh, a retired pre- okay. press agent You're named right. Jerry Siegel, who's just a wonderful guy. So, you know, and... and I, I, I know it. Steven, people love you. I mean, I hope everyone listening is getting as much joy out of this interview as I am. And just hearing that and hearing how life is, is absolutely amazing. I mean, unfortunately, we have to go on because we've got a full show ahead. But I have to tell you, on behalf of the gay community, thank you for what you did in 1969. You changed my life and made it so much better. And, I, you know, I, you're a hero to me. I'm so glad oh, I met you in person. I'm just so grateful for everyone who was there who uh, stood up for our rights and really changed our history. And I think um, I'm celebrating this month, and I'll continue to celebrate in honor of you because I just think you're amazing. So thanks for being on well, the show today. We're playing well, more thank Ricky you. Martin, Stephen. Okay, Are you a fan thank of Ricky you. And you're my hero, right. too. Yes, I met Ricky Martin once on the street. It was adorable. He couldn't have been sweeter, you know, and he took All his right. compliments very well. I love it. All right, so this one, next song is in honor of Steve, and we're going to play the Cup of Life, courtesy of Sony Music. Here we go. Okay, and, and have, have, have Show. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Hi there. Well, it's Pride Month. Uh, it's there's so much going on in New York City. Every day you see the Pride flag. What does that mean to you? So for me, the Pride flag is just it's a it's a symbol reminding me that I need to be who I am and be unapologetic about it. I, there's a lot of there's a lot of symbolism behind it, a lot of history that needs to be learned and respected and reminds us how you get to this point in life and how you as an individual get to make the choices that you want to make um, and and be your most authentic self. And how did that journey begin for you? Like when did it happen? Tell us a little bit about your quote unquote coming out story. So my coming out story is is uh, was a late one. Um, I didn't come out until I was 30 years old, um, almost 31. Uh, funny enough, it was I was I was closeted, and I pretty much uh, knew that that I was gay probably since uh, early in high school. Um, and you'll get to hear this will kind of come full circle um, when I. Uh, was also diagnosed as a type 2 diabetic in my senior year of high school. And I was making a choice at the time to focus a lot more on my health than I was on trying to figure out sexual identity. Um, so I went to college closeted. I graduated college closeted. Uh, made it to New York when I was 25, closeted, and uh, five years in, uh, actually what brought me out of the closet was was a work situation where I took on a new job um, that to me was overwhelming, and I felt like I've lost all control of, of things that were going on, and my brother just got married two weeks prior uh, to a wonderful, a wonderful woman, my sister-in-law, Candace. Um, and I thought to myself, I need to do something to, to take control back in my life. And for me, that was the process of coming out. Um, I sent a snail mail letter. And so keep in mind, this is 2013. I sent a snail mail letter to my brother and then to my parents coming out. Uh, three days later, they got the letter. <laughs> we had a nice long chat via the, via phone, um, and that was the that was the that was the day. It was a Friday evening, I remember, in in December, uh, when I officially came out. So that's my that's my coming out story. And how did managing your diabetes uh, was there any difference in managing it through that whole process? Did you ever feel like, in some ways, holding back who you were kind of affected your blood sugar levels on any level or? Uh, anything to do with your health or just like you said, being authentic, were you, were you ever in denial about the diabetes or are you completely out about that too? I was, no, the diabetes, I was, I was diagnosed, uh, I, geez, I think that the, the official date was December 15th of 2000. Like that's how, that's how red letter of the day it was. Um, and I, I was diagnosed, uh, I was admitted to children's hospital because I was 17 at the time. And the original thought that I was a type one diabetic, so I stayed overnight in the hospital. They gave me a day and a half crash course um, of how to manage diabetes, check my blood, uh, inject. I think at the time I was injecting three times a day. Um, and then after a month, some test results came back that either 
uh, indicator that I was a type 2 diabetic or I was just in a very long honeymoon period as a type 1 diabetic. Um, turns out it was officially a type, it was a type 2 diabetes diagnosis. Um, but at the time that I was diagnosed, I was overwhelmed with two major life events, uh, one being medical and then one dealing with, with, with my identity. Um, and being a teenager and not fully thinking through, my logic turned to, I don't think I can handle both of these at the same time. So I need to focus on one. And because I was like, everybody knew that I was a diabetic, I, and I wasn't ready yet to come out. I owned my diabetes <laughs> and made sure that I was checking my blood sugar and keeping healthy. And, you know, when I was diagnosed, I was 230 pounds and it, it took maybe about six months to get my blood sugars under control, get down to uh, 185 and try and maintain a healthy lifestyle. And that was, that was my goal. That was the focus. If I could get that under control then I thought that I would be fine. Um, there were times where yeah, I did you feel significantly most recently too, though, Greg. Right? You lost like 25 pounds in these recent months, haven't you? I did. So there, you know, now being a diabetic for 18 years, there are times when food just tastes really good, and sometimes I don't. I don't listen to the voice of reason about moderation. And uh, while I was active, clear, I wasn't, you know, a calories in, calories out situation. I was definitely packing on some pounds. So last October, I made a conscious decision to get a trainer and kind of refocus. Um, I also had uh, an A1C of, I think it was 8.1 at the time. And that was my, for me, I'm, I'm never a fan of, of an A1C being above seven for myself. I, I give myself a very strict guideline to to keep that number. So to get the 8.1 was a, was a wake up call to say, you got to get your life in order uh, or at least manage it a little bit better. And so I got a trainer, I got on a bit of uh, a better diet. And then eight months later, you know, 25 pounds down, um, hopefully going to get another 10 in there at some point. Um, so working on what they call summer body 2020, or I guess I was deciding to retire winter body 2016. <laughs> I love it. Well, a lot of people look at those numbers and kind of assign a shame or blame to them. I mean, just what you said and the way you looked at your A1C, it was like you were looking at looking at it as information, which is what we always encourage people to do. Was that ever an issue for you with these numbers, the number on the scale, the A1C number, or the blood sugar number? What was your perception of those numbers um, as you were going this last decade of living with diabetes? So the the numbers the A1C was always just a good indicator to for me to to check in and understand. I I, I will be the first to admit I probably don't test uh, my blood sugar on a daily basis as much as I should, um, but I can understand when my body is is tired or when I'm having when when I can feel that my blood sugar is higher than it should be or or lower than it should be. Um, it does play a, a you know a significant mental effect at times where if you feel like you don't feel well and your numbers don't show it 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 kind of puts you a little bit of in a hole and you want to find out a way how you can just climb out of that hole um, I 
try as much as I can to use the numbers strictly as data. But I know that on occasion, it, it, it's, it doesn't seem that simple. Um, I would more tie myself to the, uh, the number that I see on a scale um, because I feel like that helps me correlate how I'm going to see my A1C when I go to see my endocrinologist. And so through those actions and then getting good numbers, that is in itself also a motivator to say, you're on the right track, keep doing what you're doing, you're doing well. And so there's, there is a sense of accomplishment um, that the task that you have, you're able to achieve. I love it. All right, I wanna ask you about um, body shaming in the gay male community. So, I, I mean, I feel like it's always been there. Has that played an effect, had any effect on you as you're trying to manage your diabetes health? Because it is prevalent to me, it's still as prevalent as it was 20 years ago. Yeah, I do think there is a mentality about it, uh, for sure. Um, you know, there's, there is the, uh, and I'm using air quotes, <laughs> the thirst traps uh, of Instagram and um there are people that have really good metabolisms and there are people that have um, been dedicated and have been working out and have earned the, uh, you know, the body they've, they've given themselves. Uh, it is something that has been a challenge for me because I was never, I was never a skinny kid. Uh, I was always someone that sat on the couch and was uh, eating junk food and drinking juices and, and, and full sugared sodas. Um, you know, I, I wasn't one that might've set myself up for, for the best success. Um, but I do believe that there's a way that anyone, um, diabetic or not, uh, as long as they are happy with how they feel, um, the hope is that no one should make a comparison to themselves based off of other people within the culture. And that could go for, for gay or straight. I do, I do believe that it does persist more in the, in the gay community. Um, from a, you know, the, there, is, there are some parts of the stereotype that, that do ring true. Um, but I do have to remind myself that it does take time and effort to get to where you want to be if you have a goal to change body shape or to make lifestyle changes to make you healthier. Um, and at the end of the day, you have to be comfortable in your own skin. Um, once you get to that mindset, I think it's, going, it's easier to know that those, you know, the, 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 the body images that are out there do exist, but they exist on their own and you can be happy for them at the end of the day, I have to be happy for me. And now, what, what's it like to manage your diabetes um, as a gay athlete, specifically in volleyball? How, how has that affected your level of play, your level of enjoyment, your level of health? So, um, by the way, thank you so much for calling me an athlete. That's the <laughs> That's the first that anyone's <laughs> given me that compliment. <laughs> um, we should tell to them be... that they've never seen you play. You're an amazing athlete. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I, what I like about 
so the way that I manage my, my diabetes um, on the court uh, or in any given day, whenever I have to do physical activity, um, I am mindful of what I put in my body before a match. So that way I'm not um, bulking myself up with, 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 you know, a carbohydrate source that's going to spike my blood sugar and then have me crash 25 minutes into a 45 minute uh, set of three volleyball games. Um, I, I have to have something like a, like a granola bar or, or oatmeal beforehand. So that way I can have a steady stream of energy and that, that, that can be said for, for anyone getting on the court. Um, when I'm done being on the court, you know, there's a, there is a, you know, an endorphin and serotonin rush that if I were to take my blood sugar after a match rather than before it, I wouldn't be surprised to see that my blood sugar had a little bit of a spike naturally because of my, because of the, the effort that I put in. Um, I do find that if I don't uh, eat anything beforehand, I do, by the time you get into that third game, the fatigue really does set in and your body does start to use more energy than you expect it to. Um, after the match, uh, I try as much as I can not to, you know, drink the Gatorades out there. I try and, and have um, a, a, a low or no calorie drink uh, when I play. So it's usually a water or sometimes it's a seltzer. Um, and then after, because Gotham volleyball is, is first and foremost community, um, you, you get to go out um, and socialize with, with your peers on that you played both on your side of the court and those against uh, you on the, you know, on the court. Um, and to be honest, I've never been a big drinker because of when I, when I was diagnosed, alcohol was always something that I was told I needed to um, have in very slow moderation, um, especially given some of the medications that I've been on. And so I have learned to enjoy myself after games um, with, with a, a diet soda or, or a water. And, uh, you know, on the rare occasion, I do, I do have a drink. Um, but that's how I, uh, that's how I enjoy my, my volleyball experience. Hello. All right. And our final question in a minute, tell, uh, in less than a minute, tell me, uh, what does pride mean to you, Greg Rubin? Oh, pride means showing the world who you are and not apologizing for one bit of it. Um, you can be prideful every day of the year. It doesn't have to just be uh, during your city's pride, parade, uh, pride March or just in the month of June. Um, you have to be happy with who you are. And if you're happy with who you are, then you are filled with pride. I love it. I love you. You're awesome. We're so happy to celebrate you as well as Gotham Volleyball League this month in June and every month, actually, here at Diabetes Late Night. Hey, um, listeners, if you were wondering what Greg was talking about when he said A1C, 8.1, managing your diabetes with alcohol, uh, the difference between type 1 and type 2, hang on to the end of the podcast. We'll be talking to Patricia Addy Gentle around some of these facts. She's our certified diabetes educator on the show. And coming up, we've got Maria Salazar. But right now, Greg, I know you love Ricky Martin. Do you love Ricky Martin? I do love me some Ricky Martin. <laughs> <laughs> All of 
love Ricky Martin. And, hey, he was on General Hospital for several years, and he also guest starred as a Spanish teacher on the Fox TV show Glee, entitled, the episode is entitled The Spanish Teacher, if you want to Google it on YouTube. Here's La Bamba, courtesy of Sony Music, celebrating Pride Month. Let's listen. Thanks, Greg. Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Dina Medic, and we're celebrating Pride all night long on Diaries Late Night. My next guest is an attorney activist who works to build bridges between the LGBTQ community and the Latino community regarding civil and human rights, marriage equality, non-discrimination, and transgender issues, among many others. Please welcome to the show Maria Salazar. Hello, Maria. Hi. Can you hear me? Oh, there she Hello, is. can you hear me? How are you tonight? There we are. Good, how are you? Welcome to the show. You had a big night the other night, elections in San Antonio, uh, a lot of good stuff going on. Tell us what happened. Well, actually, we, we had a victory. Uh, we elected Mayor Ron Nuremberg for a second term. He's been a proven advocate for our community. It was a close race. Uh, the community came together with the Rainbow Coalition uh, put out the votes was a it was a huge victory for us. So uh, that's great news for us. I've been I've been watching you celebrate on Facebook, so I follow you. So that's how I knew about that. I think it's amazing. I'm very <laughs> excited. Um, we've never met, so tell us tell me as well as our listeners at Diabetes Late Night a little bit about. Um, let's start with your diabetes diagnosis. This time we'll reverse the script. When were you diagnosed with type two diabetes? I was diagnosed in 1995 when I was living in San Francisco, and it was a bit of a shock. And uh, I was visiting my doctor because I had this reincurring uh, yeast infection that we could not get around. And we checked my blood work, and that's, you know, it turned out to be that I had diabetes. And I wasn't surprised because I have a family history on both sides uh, of, you know, of having diabetes. And, uh, but, you know, the reality, I was 32 at the time, you know, I was just like, oh, no, because I already had an experience, you know, the experiences of my family uh, living with diabetes. So it was, you know, I was angry and, and upset, uh, but also knew the reality of it's like, okay, I needed to make some changes and really uh, educate myself on, you know, what it meant to have this chronic illness uh, impacting me at young adulthood. And how was your family at managing uh, their diabetes? Did you have any uh, history of complications within the family, or were pretty much everyone pretty um, proactive in how they went about managing their diabetes? Well, no, actually, I didn't have great role models. In fact, so you know, um, my uh, my background is I come from a Mexican American family. So the the role models I had was like you know it's just something you live with you know you you know my my 
parents and my grandparents, my aunt and uncles pretty much ate whatever they wanted. And, um, you know, I saw the complications from everything from amputations to heart issues to neurological, you know, neuropathy issues. You know, I look back on now, I didn't have that information, but now I look at it, it's like, oh, you know, Uncle Louie was on on uh, dialysis because he had diabetes and didn't take care of himself. Um, and and so had a lot of young deaths in, in our in both sides of the family. And I look at it now, it's like, okay, that's not the that's not how I want to live. You know, I want to live healthy and happy and so I really had to, you know, inform myself how I was going to manage this illness. And fortunately, you know, I lived in San Francisco and had a great uh, doctor and was able to access a lot of information and, you know, just try to figure out, you know, how am I going to manage this? So, yeah, well, you know, I have you know, to make this connection um, between, you know, with diabetics since I started 15 years ago, I think a connection between, like, some of the shame and blame associated with um, your sexual orientation is kind of similar to a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And, you know, that's why diabetic has always been kind of live out loud, be proud, because I feel like when you claim it, you not only do, do you uh, take away someone's power to shame it, but it also, you just become much more proactive about it. And Greg just kind of went to my mindset a little bit earlier, which is why I'm bringing it up with you, specifically because of your family history. And even though you weren't aware of how, uh, what was going on with people or connecting the dots between kidney or neuropathy with uh, their diagnosis of diabetes, I just wonder if that kind of, if you saw any kind of uh, shame or blame around it too. And then, you know, from the standpoint of, your sexual orientation like mine, if you feel like there's any parallel there as well? Well, um, yeah, let me start off with, um, you know, I really, you know, two years after I was diagnosed, I moved to to San Antonio, Texas. There's some great resources here in San Antonio with the Diabetes Institute through the university health system here. And they offered classes. And uh, so I, I, you know, enrolled in those classes and really educated myself on, uh, nutrition and how it impacts uh, our organs and, you know, paying attention to numbers and how to best manage it. Um, and, you know, for, for about 10 years, I had uh, about good 15 years, I had, you know, was able to manage it and keep it under control. Um, I'd say about five years ago, I think we, you and I came into contact about three or four years ago. I started to like, okay, I need to be out about, my health, you know, I need to be out as a diabetic, and you know that just kind of came to me uh, because we're out as as you know LGBT, you know, folks. I'm out as a lesbian, and you know, there's this myth that oh, you know, you're 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 queer and you're young, and so there's a myth that you know that there's affluence or access to services. It's like, well, no, that's not that's not true. Um, you know, whatever this those projections are of, of having an ideal health or ideal access to services, it's not there. It's a challenge for, you know, everyone. So I started to like take my managing of my diabetes as, as being out as a diabetic person, kind of taking, you know, from the organizing, you know, my organizing days uh, that I still do about being out as, as, as a lesbian, you know, gender bending, uh, you know, activist. Um, and you're right, you know, being out about that is much more empowering. And, um, and you just, you know, I just feel like there's more control 
uh, or you, you just, you know, I come from a point then of like, okay, I can take care of this, the more information. And the other thing is I help people, you know, talking about health and being holistic and, and taking that view to that point. I love it. All right. So now, Maria, tell us a little bit about your story, your actual coming out story, because you're an incredible role model with all the work you're doing in San Antonio. And I really want listeners to hear your story and how you got to where you are, because you really have made some huge contributions to the community as far as helping with the rights of so many different people. Well, I'm going to say that for me, you know, uh, coming out was a process. Um, I always knew I was different, um, really at the age of five. But I, I think I really, uh, I think I was born butch, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and just always was always different in terms of how I wanted to dress and express myself. Um, and I always felt like I was waiting to come out fully. Uh, and I share that because when I was in high school, I knew, I grew up in a small town in Ontario, Oregon, uh, which is, you know, right on the state line of Oregon and Idaho, and I I thought, okay, as soon as I leave this small town, I'm going to come out, and I ended up going to Willamette University in Salem, Oregon, and it turned out to be, um, I arrived at campus, and it was very conservative, and it wasn't at all, you know, supportive or anything, and I thought, oh, great, okay, as soon as I'm done with college, I'm going to come out, you <laughs> Uh, you know, because like I say, the university that I went to uh, was not very encompassing. You know, it wasn't like University of Oregon or, or Berkeley or some of the other schools I was looking at at, at that time. Uh, but even then, um, while I was in college, uh, we formed like a, the Gay Student, uh, a Straight Gay Alliance. So we could at least start to create that environment. Um, and then I was in... Um, so I came out kind of, I was like out on the weekends and I would go to Portland, Oregon and go to all the gay bars and, you know, would be out. Um, and then after college, I moved to San Jose. By that time, my mom had relocated to San Jose, Salinas, uh, California. And uh, of course I was around all my family at that time. And I really couldn't come out then because by that time I was also trying to figure out how to be out you know, in my own body, and then how to be Latina and embrace, you know, being Mexican-American. And that's when I really started to come out. And I, I think the opening moment for me was uh, I just had this revelation that I wanted to start living my truth. And uh, and I needed to discover who I was, and I ended up moving to San Francisco and uh, that's when I really started to flourish, if you will, you know, uh, identifying myself as, you know, Latina and being a dyke and doing organizing work, you know, just threw myself into organizing. And, but I say it's a process because it was like having to reconcile all parts of myself as, you know, being uh, lesbian and, 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 you know, being born uh, with, my first language being Spanish and, and, you know, what, what does it mean to be queer and Latina and, and, and all of that. Uh, so, uh, you know, when I, I how, do you navigate those, how do you navigate those labels within the legal profession too? And just in 
who you are in San Antonio. You heard me talking to Stephen Bernstein a little bit earlier. Yeah. And and how do, how are you? How do you feel about it today with these labels that we're hearing more and more of? Well, you know, I think you know if, if I have to think about it when, when I look back, I think people really appreciate it when you're honest. And when I started practicing here in San Antonio, I I knew I was going to be out, and I wasn't going to. I was going to represent who I was, and that, and that you know, my first challenge was, okay, I'm not going to wear a dress to to, to court because that's not who I am, you know. <laughs> um, I think people appreciate you know your you when you live honestly, and so I've never made any apologies about how I represent myself in 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 the legal world, um, but really stick to like, okay, look, you know being open and, and sharing my life, you know, uh, with everyone I come into contact with, you know, about, um, you know, having diabetes, about being in a relationship for 24 years and, 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 and struggling with uh, all the issues that we do, you know, dealing with aging parents and, you know, talking about, uh, uh, you know, so, you know, security issues and, and, and just like, um, you know, recognizing that we, we have relatable issues in the community and, and navigating that, I think, um, as a professional, um, I think being honest is what's been, being honest, you know, with myself is what's really paid off. All right. Well, now I want to uh, change topics because um, huh? I know you through a good friend, John Orcutt, who I really like and admire, and I really <laughs> – follow you on Facebook and I admire all the work you're doing. And a couple of years ago I dealt with this topic and it was I didn't I didn't really love the answers we were getting. Not that I'm painting anything, but Maria, I want to talk to you about women's reproductive rights because I think it's so important. <laughs> and we're a nonprofit right. so I can't talk about it, but you can talk about it. But I, I think a lot of our community uh is a little bit um we're getting more involved in the court system. We're wanting to know more, about, less about Lady Gaga, more about some of the laws that affect our lives. And the women's reproductive right. rights are really under a lot of scrutiny right now. I know you, you are working hard down in Texas. Uh, there's so many nuances going on with these, uh, how we're looking at the constitutional rights and what's happening in Alabama, and I'm throwing a lot of jargon here, but Georgia, Ohio in recent weeks are, you know, challenging the landmark uh, case of 1973 with Roe v. Wade, Supreme Court case, excuse right. me. Tell us, how, how do you see this, and how do you see the community uh, activating around it? Well, I think we, I think for one thing, we, we have to educate our community on how reproductive uh, rights advocacy has impacted the LGBTQ community because it's really about, um, you know, our, 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 our right to decide what we're going to do for our own bodies and our own health. And I think that we need to educate the, the LGBT community on, okay, we have to be advocates for reproductive health because it's about managing our own bodies. And, we have to be absolutely relentless about that because what we're what we've seen is that those who don't support reproductive rights are are going to be relentless in taking that back, and that in the end is that's going to hurt our community um, in terms of how we want to present ourselves in the world, whether or not we you know for if you're a trans person, you're going to be able to 
make those health decisions for, for yourself to be your your authentic self. Um, and we have to be relentless because what I see happening is uh, with the reproductive, reproductive rights struggle, um, as I said, it's relentless, but there's a very legal, if you look at it, there's a strategy to take to overturn those laws. And what we're seeing now is like it's, it's strategic in that we're seeing these different laws take into effect in, you know, Alabama and uh, other places in the country because then you, we've got different states, different judicial, you know, districts coming up with different um, uh, opinions that the Supreme Court has to hear to settle that law. And it's frightening to see, you know, the Supreme, you know, who sits on the Supreme Court weighing in on those decisions now. And I think those who don't support LGBTQ rights, um, if you look at it, we're seeing the same kind of strategy implemented um, as as we see efforts to undermine marriage equality law. Um, uh, and, you know, we see that with all kinds of uh, pieces of legislation popping up. It's like, well, you can marry, but doesn't mean you're going to get all the rights uh, as a married couple, as you would in a, you know, in, in what was deemed, and I'm using air quotes here, a traditional marriage. And um, I think we're going to see uh, the tipping away of LGBTQ rights um, if we don't accept the fact that we just have to be relentless about protecting all of our gains. And and, it, and it's incumbent on, on us to have a alliance relationship with the reproductive health movement. Well, and we certainly, you know, we heard earlier with Stephen Bernstein, you know, our community mobilized around eight. <laughs> you know, let's not forget right. what we did as a community. And, you know, I played with color forms as a kid. So what you're really saying is, like, your um, what's happening to women's reproductive rights, what they choose to do with their body might mean what they choose to do with my body for all the men listening out there. And so this is why it's so important that we unify and kind of get behind it. But what do you, how do you really see, um, where do you, where do you see these small wins happening for us in our community? Do you think there's anything we should be following as a community as far as looking at certain state legislature for either hope or joy, or also looking at other states for concern and something that we should rally around? Because I feel we're all at an attention deficit lately and we don't know where to put our focus. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I know I, these are I, big questions, but I, I've been dying to interview you. <laughs> okay. You know, I think we have to look at local elections matter, and we've made these changes, um, the, the, this progress, because um, because people are coming out in their own communities, and we can't. We have to celebrate all those little gains. I, I wrote out, I printed out those things that, you know, this. Last weekend, um, Del Rio, which is a, a little border town in South Texas, had their first pride. Um, this also the same last weekend, uh, Corpus Christi had their fourth annual gay pride. And th- these aren't the big cities of Dallas and, and Houston or San Antonio. These are smaller towns with populations less than 30,000 having gay pride events. Um, when I was growing up, that never would have happened in Texas. Um, my family's actually from Del Rio, and I was actually in tears knowing that Del Rio was having their pride this last weekend. 
because, you know, I had a, an uncle who was gay, and we, we, we talked about never being able to go back home, uh, you know, to Texas because it was so homophobic and, and, and violent. And now there's a gay pride with the gay mayor in Del Rio. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know if you know, if you've heard of him, but he's someone you should, have, you know, if you sure. can, you should interview. Uh, mayor uh, Bruno Lozano. Uh, who won by a landslide um, in the last election, won by 60%. And so when you have to look at those small gains. Like, that is phenomenal uh, that he took that election and beat out the uh, the entrenched Democratic candidate. You know what I mean? So, um, Love it. So I, I do. I absolutely do. Yeah. <laughs> so I think if, if you... I so think now, wrapping up, what, is, what does pride mean to you in 2019, Maria? I think it means living your truth, because when you live your truth, you're happy, um, and that means embracing every part of you. And um, I, I love gay pride because I'm, I'm reminded at of that um, that I, I I wouldn't I'm very fortunate to have a very blessed life, and um, I, I that wouldn't be possible if I had you know decided not to live my truth. And, um, you know, I've been in that closet and I've been, you know, lived in that uh, that life of hiding and, and not acknowledging the full parts of myself. So that's what it means to me is to live your truth and finding your happiness. I love it. Thank you so much for being part of Divey's Late Night Tonight as we salute Stonewall 50 World Pride. All right, everybody, Yay. coming up with Maya James in a minute. But first, we're going to play song off the Living Vida Loca album. Uh, this music video was nominated for Best Male Video and Best Dance Video of 2000 MTV Music Awards. Let's listen to Shake Your Bomb Bomb, courtesy of Sony Music. You're about to hire Welcome back to Divey's Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek, and I'd love to watch Ricky Martin perform that song in the front row, if that's possible. Hey, one of our Twitter followers just asked me, Max, is this the first and only gay diabetes podcast? I don't know. I'm going to say, why not? Yes, it is. We'll be the first. We'll, we'll go on the map for being the first one. And I wanted to tell you before we get to our next guest, this show is so important to me because I have done diabetes outreach for 15 years, and... Um, Several years ago, I was at a prominent uh, African-American Methodist church in Philadelphia, and the initials are Mother Bethel. And uh, after I did my whole outreach event there, I was told, uh, which was very successful that day, I got a call the next day telling me that I would be no longer welcome back to that church. I didn't express my sexuality during that program either and therefore I felt like I had no voice I was silent and it really shamed me and I had been out of the closet for over 20 years when that happened and so that's why if you go back through the uh, 
body of work of nine years of podcasting, you will see on certain podcasts that I do uh, come out and, and discuss my sexuality because I, I feel the power. And what uh, Stephen and Maria and Greg said about living your truth is so true. And sometimes you have to do it over and over again. And the only thing I have to say is out of that experience, so much amazing things happened for me as uh, a gay diabetes advocate, and I'm very proud to do this show. So if I'm the first one to do a gay diabetes podcast, then um, thank you all my guests and everyone on the show tonight for raising the bar and give, making it something that people have to try to come up to because it's a great show. So with that note, we're going to turn the uh, we're going to we're going to switch it up right now because I'm so I want to welcome my next guest. She's a registered nurse in New York City, and she's going to talk to me more about some of the issues the transgender population is facing when it comes to barriers in healthcare. Please welcome to the show Maya James. Hi, Maya. Hi. Hi. Good evening. Thank you. Can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you so much for okay, being on good. the show tonight. I'm not echoing or anything, right? You're what? I'm not having some echo behind me. It's clear. Oh, no, you're good. We're, okay, you're, good. You're clear as a bell. So, you know, good, um, good. you just heard me talking to Mariah, uh, I'm sorry, Mariah, Mariah Carey, no, Maria Salazar, about some of the um, issues we're facing as a community, but some of the statistics around the transgender community when it comes to uh, the barriers we're facing in healthcare are quite alarming. I said at the top of the show, like 29% of transgender community says that uh, they face so much uh, discrimination that they, a lot of times, not only do they delay getting health services, they might just forego it completely. Tell us a little bit about your experience, Maya. Okay, basically, I'm just going to talk about my personal experience. Okay, so. It can deviate with others. Um, everyone has their different experiences. In my case, I, I, I think I just got lucky because I transitioned rather late in my adult life. And um, did I face any sort of like discrimination when I was young? I kind of did. But at the same time, at a young age of four, I already knew something was wrong with me. But knowing how or seeing how trans people back in the Philippines were being treated, you see it on TV, you know, you sort of like, you know what, I need to somewhat survive before doing something about it. I mean, I have other, other colleagues back then when they were really, really brave to do it, and kudos to them. I mean... I wish I were in their situation, but that was a different time period. And during that time, um, it was either you become a beautician or a makeup artist or the butt of the joke on TV. So, yeah. We should, we should, wait. We should tell everyone right now that you're a trans woman so they know, because I, I didn't mention that at the beginning of the conversation. I don't want people to jump in and ask us what we're talking about. So you're telling us a little bit about your gender journey right now in case listeners are curious because I'm getting a message about it on uh, Twitter. Anyhow, continue. Uh, oh. I didn't mean to interrupt. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I mean, what else do you want to know of, of my journey? Because let's just go back. So what year did you begin your transition? And talk us through the process. Like when you were, when you were um, claiming your true identity, were, were there barriers? How did, I'd love to know first how your family dealt with it, and then I also want to deal with well, how your health care providers dealt with it. I started transitioning in 2013, basically. Um, I've been fascinated about the whole idea since 1997 because I saw this independent film, which even up to now has greatly affected me by the, the title, Different for Girls. It's, an, it's a British independent film. It, it's the story of um, two classmates, and one of them actually transitioned when she grew up. So that kind of thing. But during that time, I was basically, uh, I was basically closeted, so to speak, when I was in high school. And in my young adult life, I was rather denying my true self, so to speak. Um, and then at the year 2013, I was sort of like feeling depressed in a way wherein I don't necessarily understood why I'm being depressed. Um, and then one of my roommates started transitioning, and she said that, Maya, maybe this is who you really are. And I mean, I've already dabbled in it back in 2008. I bought um, the pills online. They were actually from Thailand, but couldn't really do it back then because I really wanted to be under the guidance of a medical doctor. So in 2013, was it hard for me? Um, when you're in New York, not necessarily, because you can just easily go to a lot of different nonprofit organizations that cater to the LGBT community, and they will hook you up. So in my case, I ended up in Aperture because I think back then when I um, asked Callan Lord, they asked me if I had insurance. And I think during that time, they only offered their services to people without insurance. So I ended up at Aperture. And uh, in my situation, I'm still a firm believer in a way of the of um, not necessarily as gender dysphoria, but transsexualism, like the classic definition of someone who's gender dysphoric. You know, I still kind of like to distinguish a cross-dresser from a transvestite and to a transsexual slash transgender. So, yep. And then do you, think we're fast getting, forward. do you think we're getting up to speed on that in the community or no? I'm sorry? I said, do you think we're getting up to speed on the difference between those terms in the community, or do you agree or disagree with well, that? Well, the thing is that nowadays they just want to lump everyone into gender dysphoria, so to speak. And I kind of don't really like that because it um, blurs everything. So now, nowadays, like even the word trans, can actually mean something else, like, you know, the different cases that are out there where it, apparently this man who claims himself to be trans, that, that he's a six-year-old girl trapped in a 61-year-old man's body. And I just go like, okay, this is not being trans at all. This is just my thing. So don't, you know, don't think that all trans people think this way. But 
you know, I think there should somehow be a distinction so that, you know, we're not just being lumped into one umbrella. And I mean, it's it's sort of like, um, uh, I mean, I have, like, for example, the whole idea of uh, non-binary people, they somehow actually lump them into gender dysphoria as well. And I just go like, this is going to be hard because in, to me, I think that it would um, invalidate the trans people that are actually living their lives and are not depressed or are not suicidal, but they're actually like the true transsexual people on this earth. So, yeah. All right, so now let's talk about it from a healthcare provider because you know when you we were you and I did a panel um, earlier this year for Gotham Volleyball League, and we we're talking about some of the issues how the health community sees uh, the gender identity. Specifically, if you were to walk into a clinic and not see your regular doctor, just the the paperwork alone can be an obstacle in how you may or may not receive treatment. Can you describe a little bit? of what you were telling me back in March? Well, what I was basically telling back in March is that I think that as a trans person or a trans woman or any out, any transsexual people or transgender people out there, they should know for a fact that um, the reason why it's called transsexual or transgender is because we, we, we actually are transitioning. And part of it is actually knowing what you were born. And the thing for me is like one of the dilemmas that I have since I'm a nurse is um, I was posing this situation to someone before. um, And then I told her that um, in your opinion, let's say, for example, you got hit by a car accidentally. You were brought into the emergency room. You had no relatives or friends to tell the doctors and nurses what to identify you with. So as a nurse and as a doctor, basically, usually they're probably going to base it from what's down under. And the thing is, um, especially it's for the trans people that refuse to or choose to not take hormones, this actually kind of becomes a little bit of a slippery slope in my opinion, because when you do that, let's say, for example, that person who got into an accident got into a coma, and then we would just base it on what's down there, we would obviously use the pronoun he to to that person, because part of being in the medical field is you're actually not supposed to assume. So the thing is, even let's say, for example, just for sake of for the sake of actually, you know what, let's just be you know, be sure about it, doctor. Let's try to take blood works on this person for the hormone panel, let's say something like that. Like the, the testosterone level and the estrogen level. If you're one of those trans people who do not take hormones, obviously your testosterone level is going to be within normal and then your um estrogen level would probably be below, like normal men, so to speak. So now let's say, for example, that trans woman woke up after six months in a coma. 
The dilemma that I have is that there is this law nowadays that we have here in New York City wherein when you're actually misgendered, people can actually file a lawsuit against you. And the thing for me is sort of like, okay, where do we actually distinguish, you know, like when do we, when can there be somewhat of a gray area for medical people? Because in, in that situation, once the patient actually wakes up and that person actually tells the nurses and the doctors, that, oh, I'm sorry, um, I know you guys didn't know I'm actually a trans person. And obviously, let's say, for example, in the notes, in the notes, that person will be mispronounced, um, yeah, will be, um, will be mispronounced initially. The question is, if that person finds out that she has been mispronounced, should she be able to actually file a lawsuit against those medical people? That's actually one of the issues that I have. Because when you're in the medical field, for to say, it's actually kind of binary. So we still go for like the he or the she. Why is that? Because when you're a he, obviously there's an anatomy that's different from the she. And if you're a trans woman and if you're actually taking hormones, when they actually check your blood works, it will reflect there. That itself would somehow be sort of like, um, it will rule out that, oh, okay, she's actually a trans woman, that kind of thing. So that for me is sort of like the slippery slope when it comes to one of the issues in the medical fields for trans women. Um, yeah, that's the big one for me because I myself would be affected by it. And the other thing is if, if let's say, for example, lawsuits will keep on being filed, it will make the doctors and nurses be afraid to take care of a trans person. And we are obliged from our Hippocratic oath to actually make sure that, you know, we're stewards and stewardesses of life, so to speak. So, and assumptions yeah. also play a, a part of the obstacle in the healthcare community. You know, um, sometimes a doctor or nurse or a healthcare provider might assume like you were saying earlier about uh, someone who's trans either way, and it could be an, an insult or it could be an information-gathering experience. And I know you had mentioned in a, on that panel back in March how a doctor wrongly assumed that you were a cisgender woman. Yeah, and to an extent it was both awkward and embarrassing because – she was just asking me, like, um, have you been pregnant before, blah, blah, blah. When was your first um, menstrual period? At what age did you uh, experience it? And I said, I'm so sorry. I can't, I cannot answer that question. And then she was asking me why. I said, like, because I'm barren. And then, of course, that didn't help. She eventually had to ask, like, why do you say you're barren? And then I had to open up to her. And the thing for me is sort of, like, Obviously, the medical people are not ready yet, so to speak, to face these kinds of situations or scenarios. But I do hope that the medical people are actually being taught in their respective schools to suspend whatever belief or faith that they have. Because after all, they are the caretakers and 
the one that they're talking to is actually a patient. They're there for a reason. So, you know. Um, well, I, your energy is so great, and, you know, I just think the world of you, and, and I know the day we were outreaching to our community, you were really talking about it's okay to ask questions, and, and we have a lot of healthcare professionals who listen to this podcast. So I'm just curious if you could educate and empower them right now and how they, uh, some of those healthcare providers who might have not dealt with anyone from the trans community before, what do, what do you think a best practice would be for them? Well, the thing there is basically the initial questionnaires that they let patients fill out. That would be the first thing to go. I would probably just go for sort of like um, what I see in a lot of um, LGBT clinics. But I would have to, you know, I would have to limit it to a certain degree. Like, for example, um, what is your gender? Okay, you can just go M and then F and then MTF and FTM, something like that. Or um, um, male, um, cis, or some, or trans man, something like that, because it will greatly help a doctor in his approach to you socially, and his approach to you in a medical point of view. Because if the doctor, let's say, is dealing with a cisgendered male, why the hell would he ask the patient, like? We need to take your blood work because, you know, we want to check your testosterone level. He doesn't need that unless the patient himself would actually request for it for whatever reason. You know, in a way, it, it, will, um, it helps and it aids the doctor. And at the same time, it doesn't become a burden insurance-wise if you happen to have an insurance, those kinds of things, because you're vastly reducing the um the wastage of time and assessment and the doctor will will be able to actually attend to you you know instead of him confused and all that cuz at least if it's already there let's say for example i check female and then i check ftm socially hopefully hopefully socially the doctor is not dumb to actually call me a mister but he would just go ahead and say, hi, miss, how are you doing, miss, blah, 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 miss Maya James, how are you, that kind of thing. That itself is basically sort of like, okay, all right, this doctor is, is uh, fine. He actually knows how to apply the ethics behind medicine, you know, the kind of thing. Wherein, again, usually when you're in the medical field, Whatever belief system you have, you suspend it because you're a care, you're in the healthcare field. You're a medical caretaker, so to speak. So that's that's one of the things that would probably aid doctors nowadays, especially in this world of people who sometimes just claim that they are. But then again, sometimes I think that it's it's sort of like excessive too. So you know, but that that. Initial move will help, definitely. I love it. All right, so in the final moment, uh, Maya, what does pride mean to you? <sighs> Let me ask you that question first. What does pride mean to you? <laughs> Turning the tables. I love it. Um, pride, 
believing in yourself and being true to yourself. And I think, um, you know, to me, it's about owning every part of yourself and just searching for the truth and living your truth every day. And through uh, your, and not only through your words, but through your actions. That's very. That's a very. That's actually a very, very good definition of pride. In my case, though, what does pride mean? I would always like to go back to the history of it all. What was pride really about? For me, pride really means like being able to actually be recognized as a human being, as a person. Yet that you just happen to belong in the LGBT community. And that is more than enough. Um, part of the reason why I want to go back to that sort of like definition is because currently I think that in a way um, pride has become slightly excessive and slightly too sexual because I have nephews and nieces and I would like them to to experience and watch and see how pride really goes. But then again, I don't want them to see sort of like almost nude people and, you know, foe having sex in public. And I'm like, this is not what pride is for me. Pride is basically like I walk there looking like any other human being out there, fully clothed and all that. I just happen to be in the LGBT community. Period. That's it. No excesses, no, none of the superfluous things, you know. And at the same time, it would, for me, pride would actually be good if, if it's somewhat like that because there's no need to sort of like, you know how the floats are being done. It seems like nowadays you only get to be part of the float if you have a certain body type. And I just go like, mm, okay, this is not how it was. And the thing is, I experienced my first pride in New York back in 2000, in year 2000. And during that time, it was good because they also allowed teenagers at that time because um, I belong to a group called Gailey in New Jersey. So the thing is that um, Everyone else back then were really just marching. Some are actually having fun, but, you know, in a very sort of like, this is who we are, this is what we are. So, yeah, I know it kind of sounds sort of like um, prudish in a way, but I want people to understand that, you know, being in the LGBT community in a way is not necessarily all about sex, so to speak. So. No, I thought I thought your uh, definition was very powerful. And I love that you were on the show tonight and helping just educate and empower all of us around all these terminologies and around our community. And I think what you said was so meaningful about let's see each other as people. All right, we're going to come right yes. back after next song and talk to Patricia Eddie Gentle about tonight's show. Thank you again, Maya, for being on the show. But first... You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Do you like Christina Aguilera? Do you like Christina Aguilera? Of course. Why not? All right. Well, she had had a major worldwide hit with Ricky Martin called Nobody Wants to Be Lonely. We're going to listen to that. Compliments of courtesy music. And when we come back, Patricia Addy, Gentle, and I will do a download on what we heard tonight and talk about some of the terminology to empower you listeners to live a happy and healthy 
and a gay life with diabetes. Here's Ricky Martin, courtesy of Sony Music. Diabetes and Pride podcast in honor of Stonewall 50 World Pride. I want to thank everyone for all those Twitter uh, shout-outs and Facebook shout-outs. Remember to check out Divabetic on Facebook. We've got our fan page and our group page. Uh, go to our website, divabetic.org. We've got a lot of great events coming up uh, later this summer. Plus, you know, we do our annual mystery radio uh, podcast in September. That's going to be uh, a lot of fun. But let's Roll it back and talk to Patricia at a gentle right now about tonight's show. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Max. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being on the show for what someone <laughs> said was the first ever gay diabetes podcast. So I, I, I like that term. Um, all right. So I was taking notes through some of these um, interviews tonight. And I, I want to take a minute with you to educate some of our listeners. We should tell everyone you're a certified diabetes educator. Um, I'm going to skip down to Greg Rubin because this is where we're really talking about type 2 diabetes. It was interesting that Greg said that he was misdiagnosed as a type 1 when he was living with type 2 because usually, and we have heard in the last nine years of podcasting, the rebirth, usually the type 1s are misdiagnosed as type 2, right? That's true. That's true. I can't recall what he said about his age at the time of diagnosis, but I'm thinking it may have been age-related. Um, and sometimes um, healthcare providers are misled to feeling that a young person has type 1 because for so many years we were led to believe that type 1 and what we had formerly called juvenile diabetes had that early onset. But we do know that uh, type 2s, you can be type 2 with um, at that age as well. And, and there is a an epidemic of type 2s in younger people now because of our changes in our lifestyles and some of our behaviors. But, yes, and he did say that later on after having some testing and, um, you know, it was determined that he was not type 1 but type 2. So it sounds like that he was, may... He was diagnosed, I believe, at the age of 17, which I agree with. And, yes. you know, my brother was diagnosed in his mid-30s with type 1, which was the complete opposite of Greg, and he was thought he was type 2, and he actually was type 1. All right, the next thing Greg brought up with was his A1C, which uh, crept up to the number 8.1. What does that yes. number really mean in terms of blood sugars, and what is an A1C for anyone who's newly diagnosed, or maybe someone who has a partner, significant other, or I am, happy to say, a husband or wife living with uh, diabetes today and wants to know more information. Yes, well, the A1C is a test that's actually done. It's, it's a blood test, and it's done to determine what type of management um, 
a person with diabetes has had over a three-month period, three to four months. And what happens is we have sugar that sticks on the red blood cells. And measuring the amount of sugar that has coated on that blood cell will give you the number. Um, Sometimes it's called the um, glycosylated hemoglobin A1C. But that A1C gives you some type of knowledge of how well you've managed your diabetes. And he did say that he um, used that data, but not so much for day-to-day testing, but just as a check-in. So that was what he meant by that. And so um, using a, a, a daily blood sugar can actually help you in achieving a better A1C. We want to see an A1C that is 7% or less, and that number is given to us by the American Diabetes Association. So 8.1 is considered to be high, and it actually um, a 7% is an average blood sugar of about 130 or so. So um, the 8.1 is 150, 155. So it means that his blood sugar is not always at that number that I just stated, but that's the average. So there may be times when there are excursions. You may have a blood sugar of 100 and you may have a 300. But when you put them together and average it, that's the number that you're seeing with the A1C. So like I say, if you notice on a day-to-day basis that your numbers are trending pretty high, then you can take action and do something about that. Assess what did I eat or how much exercise did I do or did not do and what can I do to bring that number down and get it back in the normal range. All right, and then with Maria... We heard her story and about her family history of diabetes and, of course, some uh, some heavy co- uh, complications, which she wasn't aware of at the time. But we now know from research that uh, a lot of family history of complications, people tend to think that's the only course of action for them. And here we have someone who's bucking the trend. Uh, Maria took action. She got herself educated. She was mentioning how when she was in Texas, uh, she had an incredible educational program through her college, I believe. And so, you know, she's kind of going against the trend. But you've seen in the Latino as well as the African-American community this idea that if grandma grandpa had strokes or amputations or even dealt with neuropathy, a lot of patients have thought that's going to happen to me. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, our job as CDEs and healthcare providers is to stop that type of thought process because you can, I mean, it it is possible that you can go that route, but it is possible also that you can change that trend. It's not necessary that because someone in your family has had a stroke or had some bad outcomes from their diabetes that you also will have those kind of outcomes. And the best thing you can do is to check blood sugars, keep um, 
the A1C within the, the recommended range, make sure that cholesterol levels and all of the numbers, blood pressure levels, are where they should be. If you are testing at home or checking periodically, then you can notify your doctor, okay, my blood pressure medicine is not working or my numbers are tending, trending a little higher than what they usually are, uh, the stated range that you have given me, and we need to do something about it. And so the normal appointment span is about every three to four months. So if you're having if you're having problems that you identify while you're at home, then that's a good time to call and have an early appointment for better management of the conditions. But make sure that you are aware of your numbers. That is the best uh, advice that I can give. And make sure that your doctor is informed of any changes in those numbers, especially if you're not able to identify the reason. So if you know you're not eating right, if you know you're not taking your blood pressure medicine as prescribed, if you know that there is a reason behind it, then correct that reason. But if there is some unanswered question in your mind as to why your numbers are trending differently than what you're accustomed to, it's time to take action and maybe see your provider earlier. All right, and then uh, finally, Greg uh, mentioned his uh, new exercise regime, and I've been following Maria on Facebook, and she also began an exercise routine. And I know there are a little, a couple pitfalls with exercising with diabetes. What are some of the things we should be best practices when exercising if we have type 2 diabetes? Well, first of all, Check with your doctor. Make sure that you're doing an exercise that is okay for you. Um, a lot of people there statistically will have high blood pressure or maybe will have some type of heart condition, and so you want to make sure that it's an exercise that you should be able to do. Then you want to do it um, within the time frame, a moderation uh, you know, don't overdo it. Don't try to run a marathon if you're not accustomed to running, but go gradually. Also, you want to check your blood sugar before and after, and you should not exercise when you're not when you have not eaten anything. You have to make sure that you have nutrition on board so that you don't run the risk of having a low blood sugar. So you do want to exercise, and everybody is advised to exercise on a daily basis if possible, and a minimum of uh, three days per week. But do exercise, and you want to exercise at least 30 minutes as well to get some cardio build up. But talk with your doctor first. Make sure that the medication you're taking is compatible with what it is you're trying to do and that you're okay to do that particular exercise. Keep hydrated. Okay, then. Oh, and stay hydrated. Love that. All right, so finally, you know, we spoke to Maya at the end of the program. I mean, I felt, um, I'd love to get your reaction to that because I found it so eye-opening to hear how people who struggle with their gender identity, finally get to that place of knowing who they are and wanting to be who they are, and then they seek out medical or healthcare help, and someone might insult them right off the bat and really uh, put up an obstacle and why they would even 
uh, want to seek help when they're not when someone's really not seeing them as biased as who they are, the person they are in front of them. So that was, uh, you know, I hope people really took that insight to heart. That was really important to hear that comment tonight. I know this is one of the most inspiring podcasts, unlike any of the others that I've participated in, and I thoroughly enjoyed it and was empowered by the information that I heard. Some information that. Uh, increases and, and makes me keener of the sensitivity that I have towards the patients who I see. And in every profession, we have to be, you know, approached in a non-judgmental type way and ask the appropriate questions. And some, when someone tells you that they're embarrassed by a question, um, you know, there there's usually a reason behind that. And so sometimes we're not sensitive enough to um, do like maybe a private type of conversation. It might be in a space where people can overhear or whatever the reason, we need to find out why. And then if we decide that this is just not the category of patient that we need to see, we need to know how to refer. And sometimes, you know, we're not equipped for everything that may come our way, but we need to handle it as best we can and refer and let the patient know why. It's not because I don't want to see you. It's not because, um, you know, I have a distaste for patients like you or whatever. There's nothing wrong with you, but this is out of my league. It's just like um, a lawyer or any other profession. If, if you're not, if you're criminal law, then you're not doing divorces. And so you have to stay in your lane and know what your strengths and what your weaknesses are. But by no means should we ever make someone feel belittled or that they are being judged for being the way that they are. I love it. Thank you, Patricia. Thank everyone for being on this podcast uh, tonight. I agree with you. It's a really um, important podcast for us and for me. Specifically as a gay man, I wanted to do this because I think when you look at the Divabetic uh, brand, so to speak, uh, it, it comes a little bit back to who I am, and uh, this is me. And I know coming out isn't for everyone. I know it's a difficult. I'm so glad uh, for my journey. It, it was uh, has been wonderful and amazing. And uh, I think of those ordinary men and women um, who fought for my human rights back in 1969 and did something extraordinary. And I wish that upon all my listeners, that they take that challenge in their life and they do something extraordinary with it. Um, remember, every diva has an entourage and dude, and I'm so glad to be part of yours. Check out divabetic.org. We're here for you, and we want you to stay happy and healthy together. We're going to end this show with Ricky Martin's biggest hit of all time, Living La Vica Loca. I will tell you why this is so important, because seeing yourself and who you are through others is powerful. And for everyone, when Ricky Martin, as a gay man, when Ricky Martin came out, he said a huge sign to many of us, symbol of who, what we could be and how successful we could be and how popular we could be and that no matter what, we were going to live our truth, and he's been doing it every day. So I'm so proud to play this last song of Ricky Martin's, and I continue to wish you happy Pride, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next month with our anniversary show. Here's Living La Vida Loca.